MSBC here, and thank you for tuning into our show. The last iteration of MSBC Replay took you back through all that MSBC 2020 had to offer, but for round two, we're going to go back just a little bit further. This upcoming conference is the 10th anniversary of our founding, and because of that, we want to recap and reminisce on some of the most amazing speakers from the past nine years. So, each week, we'll bring you an in-depth interview from a speaker at each conference, starting at MSBC1 and working all the way up to today, learning about how the industry has grown and how they have personally evolved since you last heard from them. With that, I'll kick it over to Aaron, and I hope that you enjoy the show. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the MSBC Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Latham, and today I'm joined by Marcus Collins, Clinical Assistant Professor of Marketing at the Ross School of Business and Head of Planning at Wyden Kennedy, New York. Thank you so much for hopping on the podcast today. Glad to be here, man. Glad to be here. What's good? Nothing much. You know, it's just another day in Ann Arbor. It's a great day. Had a great win this weekend. Um, so just diving right into things, you spoke at MSBC last year. In what ways have you seen the industry grow or change the most since then? Oh man, that's a really good question. I think at its core, we've been give, we've been driving, we've been driven by the same sort of mechanics, a need to be closer, a need to uh, to better exercise and express our cultural subscription. And I think what the social technology provided for us during the 18 months that we were in COVID and sort of still in there as well, it allowed us to have greater voices have better access to, or more, more ways for us to connect um, and more diversity in the, the media landscape, which has been awesome. Uh, so now you have more podcasts, you have more content creators, you have, uh, uh, you have more people who wanna get their voices heard, which is super dope. The challenge there is that it creates a greater hurdle for marketers, content creators, idea generators to break through. Um, it reminds me so much of the music industry back in the early 2000s where the access to technology just became so democratized that is the barrier to entry to be a music creator to be a content producer dropped drastically you want to be in the records a recording studio right. to record you could be on your laptop using fruity loops or garage band or even pro tools um and so because of that people who were normally consumers or listeners they're listeners to, to the to the content we're now creating content also so greater more prolific uh creation in in the media landscape the same thing goes with uh creative product right. i.e podcasts video uh uh memes gifs and the like there's so many content creators and i think that the time between when we spoke last year uh with jj and jp uh, at McDonald's to today is more creators. And I think that the 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 want for content hasn't really grown substantially, right. which means then uh, since the supply is greater and the demand hasn't increased to the same degree, uh, it creates a bit of a commodity for for content, or at the very least, it creates a greater barrier, a greater burden for content creators uh, to produce things that people are willing to choose this one over that one. Right, and kind of on that same notion, you actually, we quoted you in MSBC9 saying that content is the currency of our social networks. So you've actually worked on and continue to produce several different digital programs and shows. How do you go about keeping ideas fresh and keeping something relevant when there is so much different content to sift through? 
Yeah, I think the ones who do it, at, the ones who are the best at it are the ones to, to, the, to the point of the quote, who thinks about content as a discursive uh, catalyst, taking things that happen um, outside of the, the cultural structure, i.e. the exogenous shocks to the system, and bring them in, recontextualize it for the community of people in an effort to spark dialogue. And here's an easy way to say that. Something happens in the news, something happens in the world, something happens outside of us. And I go, Aaron, you see this stuff, dude, this is crazy. It reminds me of, and you go, oh, that's ill. And we begin to have discourse, the two of right. us. But when we do it on social networking platforms, it's all of us. So I take a theme and then I recontextualize it into uh, the context of what we believe, how we see the world, how we behave, our cultural con our cultural characteristics, and then we begin to discuss it. And the best content creators do that very thing. They take a thing out of the culturally constituted world that we live in outside of us, take it and give it meaning. And right. that meaning happens by conversation, by the things that we talk about, right? If it's not worth talking about it, then does it even matter? That's right. Yeah. Like, you know, things may run on television, but is it in our in, in our Slack channels? Like, is it like, and are, the, are they the memes that we use or the currency that we use to discuss, to make meaning, to negotiate uh, uh, what's, what's, what's legitimate uh, with, with our people? I think the best content creators do that because they're not creating content, they're creating cultural product. And the things that we like the best, man, we don't call it content. Yeah. Like no one's like, yo, you hear that new Drake content, son? Yeah. No one ever does that. Like no one does that. People go, yo, you hear that new Jake Jake album, fam? You hear Donda, that joint is killer. No one goes yeah. to the movies and say, that was some quality content. No, you'd be like, that movie was fire, right? It's only the stuff that, that are meant to be utility or sort of forced upon us or that we don't care about that we call it content, unless you are a content creator. But no one would ever call Ernest Hemingway a content creator. He'd punch you in the right. face. Right? Like, what are you <laughs> right. about, right? Like, no. Uh, and I think that that, we think about a year ago to where we are today, there's just so many more avenues, so many more uh, uh, um, mechanisms at play that allow people who normally were content consumers to be storytellers, uh, to, to, to have a voice in the discourse beyond just responding to it. But they are now, better way to put it is, they are now recontextualizers. Right, right. And kind of on that same note, we see a lot now with influencer marketing uh, kind of taking over where everyone is becoming a marketer. So from a marketing standpoint, how do you view influencer marketing as kind of like, you know, it appears at least as a consumer to be taking over in a lot of different brand strategies. How do you think that's going to play a role in the future of marketing? So the, in, the idea of influencer marketing is a bit of a misnomer. And the, what influencer marketing does is it takes on the form of what we have typically called word of mouth. And essentially, it's someone who has created, someone who we trust that says, you got to check out this new show on Netflix. It's killer. You go, oh, sweet. Um, or it's someone who's like, have you heard about blah, blah, blah? Like, no, nah, I never heard about it. Oh, let me put you on. So what happens is these people that we, that we know in, in, in the form of like our network, our friends, our families, our teammates, turning brothers, sorority sisters, our, our, our people, 
they put us on a new stuff. They influence us in that way. Right. Now we think of like YouTube stars, TikTok stars, uh, Instagram stars as influencers, but really they're they're just they're media properties. They are they are content creators. They are uh, 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 cultural producers, and they have a population of people who follow them, who watch them, who listen to them, who tune in. But they're not like super famous, like Yay, or they're not super yeah. famous like Charlemagne the God, right? Charlemagne the God, ten years ago, you'd call him an influencer, right? Yeah. But now he's a celebrity because of how brightly, how the the how brightly wattage his reach is. That's not a word. But let's say the yeah. bright wattage <laughs> because he is bright wattage media. That's the best way to put it. Because he is bright wattage media contextualize he's a celebrity but without that like level of brightness he's an influencer yeah so it's almost like it's like the same thing just a different scale of it exactly and what the literature tells us that the people who have like tons and tons and tons of followers their level of influence man is only marginally more than a regular joe schmo because the people who influence us the most are our people right people like like us Right. So what happens is that celebrities, even quote unquote influencers, they act as contextualized media where they demonstrate something that we think contextual is like, oh, that's associated with this culture. And if I subscribe to that culture, you're like, oh, maybe I should be doing that, too. And maybe that's enough to get you to buy. Maybe that's enough to get you to go check it out. Now, what happens is that, like, say you see Jay, Jay-Z wear a, a adult Brooklyn Nets hat. You go, the hat, adult. I'm buying that hat. Yeah. Go buy the hat. And then you go hang out with your friends. You go to a party. You go to brunch with your friends. And you show up with the hat on. People go, you like an idiot, Aaron. Take it off. <laughs> you go, oh, my bad. And you take it off. Never wear it again. But if they're like, yo, Aaron, bring it that hat, man. That hat is dope. And you're like, I know, right? I know. I know. You ain't right. never taking that hat off. The influencer, in that case, Jay-Z, or the, the influencer that we typically think about it, Jay-Z, is just media. Yeah. It's like if you saw it on television spot or heard it on the radio. The people that make it stick are our people. Those are the true influencers. That's so well said. That's something you can only hear from someone with years of experience marketing <laughs> right there. And then the crazy part, man, <laughs> is that it's all in the literature. Like yeah. these things that we, you know, we give it new names. We say, this is blown up. It's a new thing, man. But like the Bible says, man, ain't nothing new under the sun. These <laughs> things, these things exist, uh, they just kind of ebbs and flow and we give it new names, but man, the literature on these things are century old, century old literature. Um, Lazarfell and, and Katz talks about it as a two-step process of influence where people see things in the media and then they then evangelize to people like them. And what happens is that this, this process of negotiation and construction as to whether or not it's acceptable happens in the discourse that that goes on, right? It, the, the literature refers to as legitimation. So this is why the best content creators are the ones who take things that happen outside of us, recontextualize it through a meme, through a, a think piece, or through like a, a TikTok video that like totally dissects it, or or or, or, or comedians are great at this. Yeah, comedians like, yo, what's happening with Donald Trump? And then they put it in the context of the people who 
are typically watching the thing. We go, oh, totally, you killed it. Oh, absolutely. That process of recontextualization, those are the best content creators. They take what exists in the world, recontextualize it to the cultural characteristics of the people, and then we talk about it. And then we go, yo, Aaron, you got to see this, this, this video, man. Like, it's exactly what we be talking about at the barbershop or exactly what we be talking about at the gym or whatever the case may be. In that way, the content isn't content. The content becomes the currency so that you and I stay together as community members. That's so well-spoken. Like, you're such a well-spoken person. I could hear, I could literally just listen to you talk. Like, oh, oh. brother, <laughs> I appreciate it, man. I count it all a blessing, man. Yeah. Count it all a blessing. <laughs> Yeah, just taking a slight pivot and looking at this through more so the lens of your career. Uh, you know, you've worked in so many different mediums of marketing from experiential to uh, digital, social media. Is there any form that you would say is your favorite to work in? And do you approach different mediums of marketing differently than one another? My favorite, yes, I'd say this. I, I used to be like the social guy would be air quotes. Um and, and so I realized what social is. Social is just people. Like social is people, social work, social justice, social action, it's all people. Um, so we talk about social media, we're talking about the media of people. And that is the best media to work in because people trust people more than any form of marketing communication. I.e., you know, we watched Tiger King last year because our friends was like, this is a banana show. Yeah. We talk about Tiger King. So you go, I guess I gotta watch Tiger King, right? Like we take on these behaviors because people like us do something like this. That's how culture moves forward. And what I realized over my career is that we spend so much time as marketing practitioners thinking about like where things fit. Like we think about like, how do we populate media real estate with the right message? And that's important. Like the context matters. But what I realized more so now is that the output doesn't matter so much. What matters is the outcome. We designed for the outcome. The outcome is discourse. The outcome is behavioral adoption. The outcome is that people do something, right? Andre Benjamin said like this, you know, if you don't move your feet, then we don't eat. So we like neck to neck, right? If you don't take on behavior, the brand don't win, right? If you don't take action, the brand does not succeed. So everything we do as marketers should be designed for behavioral adoption and my focus as a marketer today is all about what behavior do you want people to do and how do we design for that outcome? And by and large, the most influential media, the most influential driver, the most influential vehicle for information dissemination is the media of people. If you can activate people, you can get people to move. And the best way to do that is culture. Yeah. And we're talking about like through COVID and specifically like Tiger King. I, I had the realization with some other friends that just looking back through COVID and things that we watched during quarantine, it's like not all of them are great. Not a lot of them stand the test of time, but because everyone was watching it and it became a way to engage with others socially. So many of these, you know, shorter shows that, you know, weren't great, well written necessarily, but you could watch it in a day and talk about it for weeks to come just kind of became like the norm. Currency. I watch it because everybody else is watching. I want to know what everyone's talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, you think about um, uh, D-Nice who threw the club quarantine parties. Yeah. So we threw this party. Uh, this is like at the 26th of March. 
20, something like 25th or 26th of March, like right in the, 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 the start of, of COVID 2020. And I only found out about it because on my, my timeline, my friends were like, yo, D-Nice is throwing the dopest party in the country right now, perhaps yeah. in the world on Instagram. If you would have asked someone a year before that, two months, a month before that, what do you do in this Saturday night? You went to an Instagram party. They'd be like, you're the wackest person on the planet. Yeah. <laughs> like, but here's D-Nice just spinning live records on Instagram. And like everybody in their mama's there, regular Joe Schmoes like me as well as Gail King and Lenny Kravitz and Omari Hardwick, like all, like all the like Ellen, uh, like all these like celebrities and regular people are in the building, like in the, the, the figurative building. I showed up because my friends were talking about it on, on it, on, um, on, I think it was on Twitter at the time. And the interesting part about that is that when I joined, when I, when I showed up to the party, it was like 12 AM, right. On that, that Saturday night. And it was 64,000 people streaming live. No, 84,000 people streaming live at that time. The next night, he did it again that Sunday night. Mm-hmm. And there were 134 people, 30, 134,000 people who showed up. Why'd they show up? Because everybody showed up yesterday. Nothing yeah. draws a crowd like a crowd, right? Um, uh, George Lowenstein, who's a, a professor from Carnegie Mellon, talks about this as the gap in knowledge, right? Uh, is that... When, when there is a gap in knowledge, it acts like cognitive deprivation, where we spend all of our time and attention to try to close the gap. So if everybody's talking about a thing, everybody's watching the thing, you want to go watch the thing or go to the thing so you could be a part of the conversation too. Yeah. It makes you feel like you're a part of something. That's why content is the currency of culture. It allows us to participate in the discourse and make us feel like we are a part of the tribe or part of the greater congregation. Well, I, I've said it once and I mean it a thousand times. I could literally listen to you talk 24 <laughs> seven. That's great insight. But unfortunately we are coming towards the end of our time today for the episode. Uh, but there's one last question I wanted to ask you that we like to ask all of our guests. And that is a lot of the people listening to this podcast are college age students trying to get into the sport industry. Uh, is there anything you could give uh, any advice for something you maybe did in college, something you wish you had done more that you think would give a student a leg up? Yeah. Oh man. That's a really good question. I mean, people say that's like to stall. I just, I mean, I just like, <laughs> think like, man, like what advice would I give? I mean, at its course, there's two things. And I guess it's it's is it's it's industry agnostic. I mean, you gotta you you gotta make five beats a day for three summers. That's a different world like three summers. I deserve to do these numbers. Like you gotta grind, like it's like grind to make things happen. There is no elevator to success. You gotta take the stairs, right? You want a six-pack, you gotta do crunches, period, full stop. Like that's just that is the world. Right, and that's for anybody, and in, in, uh, regardless of the industry, if your if your ambitions are to be beyond average, to be beyond mediocre, um, but what I think for for the sports industry in general, you know, I think it's very important to understand the genre, understand the sport clearly. Well, I think the the superpower is having a knowledge base outside of the sport, and I think that that knowledge base has to be theory, having a great repository of theory. Um, Because theory allows us to see the world more clearly. It allows us to describe why things are the way they are. And when it comes to sport, when you like what happens on the court, 
what happens to a player's body. Like all these things are fortified and, and justified by theory. But when we come to marketing, we don't use the same level of theoretical rigor to help us paint the picture of what we was actually happening in the world. And perhaps because there is a built-in passion, there's a built-in investment uh, from consumers when it comes to sport. Like no, not no one, but most people aren't like, oh, sports, world. you know, there's, there's a fraction of people, but by <laughs> and large in this country, like, you know, people like sport because there's a lot of, there's a lot of community in, in sport. Um, so marketers kind of get to chill a little bit because there's a built-in demand in a, in a lot of ways. But I think that the really good marketers in, in, the, in the, the realm of sport, they, they look at what is real and they use theory as a way to sort of paint the picture of, of why the world works the way it was, the, where it does, the underlying physics of, of human behavior and use that to, to help arm the marketing communications that go on for, uh, for the industry. Awesome. That is some fantastic advice you give. And on that note, we are going to end today's episode. Marcus, thank you so much again for hopping on. Uh, any final remarks, words, any last things you want to get in there? Yeah, man. Yo, uh, if you're listening to this and your ambitions are to be great and your, your hopes to be in the world of, of sports, business and marketing, man, like a lot of people want to go this way, too. So it's not enough to be good. You got to be great. Right. Like J.D. Kiss said, man, it's good, but not good enough. Right. Yeah. There are only very few spots and there are a lot of people who want the spot. So you, you got to go ham, man. So I, I stress everyone, I, I implore everyone, uh, you got to go to go above, above the average, go beyond, beyond the expectations. If you are to get the things that most people want. Awesome. Yeah. You heard the man. And on that note, you know, I want to thank you one more time, Marcus, for hopping on today. On behalf of everybody here at MSBC, I want to thank you for listening at home. Remember, tickets are on sale for the conference now. That's on November 5th. It's a hybrid event, so you get your tickets online or for in-person. I'm here from MSBC. I'll catch you next time. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope that you enjoyed. If you want to buy tickets or learn anything else about the conference, please visit www umsbc.com that is www.umsbc.com or you can follow at umsbc on any social we hope to see you there on november 5th as always go blue